I thought the, the South Vietnamese deserved a chance to build their country, but they didn't seem to have the tenacity that the North Vietnamese had. One of the guys manning the North Vietnamese machine guns on top of Hamburger Hill, they had him chained oh my. to the... So he couldn't run, you know. And they were just willing to go that extra step. Yeah, and you can you can look at that in, in multiple different ways. You could say Hello and welcome to the Paul Garcia Show, a show about the remarkable people of Central Illinois. I'm your host, Paul Garcia, and I invite you to join me as I speak with these individuals about their stories, the lessons they've learned, and the knowledge they've gained along the way. Tune in every Sunday to witness the power of bringing each new individual's unique journey into the spotlight. Jerry Hoffman, thank you very much for coming on to the show today. I appreciate it a lot. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. My <laughs> pleasure. So, Jerry, I've actually known you for decades now. I actually used to kind of live by you. And I've always thought you were a very calm, nice, hardworking guy. And only recently, actually, have I came to learn about some of the stories about things you've experienced and the things that you've done. And when I first heard them, I'll be honest... I was like, is there another Jerry Hoffman? Because surely it's not this guy. But it was. So you're a lot of things. You're a grandpa. You're a dad. You're the president here at TMI. You have a master's in business administration, and I believe also a degree in math from ISU, where you were also the judo captain of that judo team there. And you're also a lot of other things. But today, I want to talk primarily about Jerry Hoffman, the Vietnam veteran. I guess we'd, I'd like to start things off with, you know, learning about who you were before your military career. So where'd you grow up and, and what kind of kid were you? I grew up in Fairbury. Um, I was fairly normal, I guess. Uh, played football for Fairbury Cropsey at the time. Was in the National Honor Society, president of the athletic club. Man, you were in a leading uh, position in a lot of things and yeah. probably a good student then. Yes, I was a fairly good student. Uh, <laughs> I wasn't always the best behaved student, but I, <laughs> grade school I got into some trouble and me and some other kids. And fortunately, I learned a lesson mm -hmm. to not do that kind of behavior. Uh -huh. And um, it kind of straightened me out. <laughs> What kind of behavior was it, if you don't mind me asking? I broke some windows <laughs> and got into trouble. How'd you break the windows? With some slingshots. <laughs> <laughs> slingshots are no joke. I've, I mean, even yeah. the ones from like the 70s and 80s, 60s even, like my dad has one. Those things, I mean, yeah, they can break windows. You can sling a yeah. rock a full block if you want to. So those yeah. are legit. Yeah. And I worked as baling hay and walking beans most of the days during the summer. It, not too much came immediately after that besides, I mean, you were 19 years old, correct, when you enlisted in the Vietnam yeah, uh, War? I, I first went to school for a year. Oh. And my grades were good, but I just didn't really know for sure if that's what I wanted to do. And the Vietnam War was going on, and me and a friend of mine, Terry Thornton, um, decided to enlist 
at that time they had a two-year buddy program where they guaranteed you'd go through basic and AIT together. And so we decided to sign up for that. And I was 19 when I went into the service. Both of us got sent to Vietnam. We got separated at Cameron Bay. I went to the 101st and he went to the Americal Division. And then okay. he was killed in action in June of that year. Man. So. Okay. So why did you guys enlist in the first place? I, I, I don't know much about the morale of the United States before Vietnam and right at the beginning. I only know about it during and after. So why did yeah. you guys enlist? Both of us were probably naive <laughs> and... I know it, looking back on it, it sounds kind of silly now, but at the time, we thought, hey, there's a war going on, this would be a new experience, and we just kind of wanted to see what it was about. Um, we found out it wasn't as much fun as we thought it was. <laughs> Did it seem kind of cool, almost? Like, yeah. Almost like a movie? Like, hey, yeah. it could be in action. Because that's kind of, I think, what happened. Mm -hmm. you, you're young, and you're kind of... You don't know what you don't know, and you watch it on the movies, and the heroes always live, and they always uh, survive, and we just thought it sounded like a, a nice experience to, to try it yeah. and see what it was like. Um, looking back on it, that's a pretty naive way to look at war. You know, both of us were in football in high school, which is a fairly aggressive sport. Oh, yeah. We didn't have wrestling back then. Mm -hmm. And then I went on and was in the judo club at ISU. Um, so I think some of it is that aggression, that young macho attitude that young men sometimes have. There's a hunger for combat in male DNA a lot of the time, I think. I think it's a hunger that you don't really understand. <laughs> right, yes, yes. You know, but yeah, I think that's true. So you sign up, you and, and your friend Terry Thornton. What yeah. were you guys expecting to be doing? Or, you know, what were you visualizing your life would be like for the next uh, couple years? You know, I don't recall thinking a whole lot about what actual combat was going to be like. <laughs> I think I had the vision that we would go to the field or in the, out into the combat more like what you saw in World War II where the, there were specific battles and they knew where the enemy was at mm -hmm. and there was more of a front. Yeah. Um, we ended up more of a search and destroy uh, type missions where we were actually out in the jungle looking for the enemy. And then when you ran into them, then you found them. The incredible thing about Vietnam in my research and in people I've talked to, like I told you, I've had David Soper on the show and his incredibly emotional uh, episode. That terrain in Vietnam is unlike anything in the United States. So I've been told in that it's a dense jungle a lot of the time. And then the enemy seems like it's the, the North Vietnamese. They're a rather unorthodox enemy, aren't they? Because they kind of hide and, and wait, and there's traps in the landscape and things like that. 
Yeah, the, the jungle is, the nearest I can ex compare it to would be the Smoky Mountains. The hill, uh, the area that I was in, we were in, a, the Ashaw Valley is a very mountainous area, and then the valley, of course, is flat. The hills, if you look at the pictures, they look very similar to the Smoky Mountains. They're not like the Rockies, but the jungle is very, very thick. Mm. Um, so it's like a triple canopy jungle. We are brought to you by Once and Again in Pontiac and Fairbury. Once and Again is a remarkable resale shop that sells and consigns pre-owned name brand clothing and shoes for your entire family. This year they celebrate 20 years of business serving our local community and beyond. Once and Again also has a great selection of pre-owned authentic designer handbags without the designer price tag. Once and Again has an ever-changing inventory of name brands and their spacious locations in both Fairbury and Pontiac. Along with their tag color clearance system, shopper rewards, and other promotions, they have prices that will fit any budget. Once and Again is open Tuesday through Saturday, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. And you can shop online, too, at onceandagain.com. That's O-N-C-E, the letter N, A-G-A-I-N, dot com. For more information about consignment or brands or for directions to their stores, you can again visit onceandagain.com. That's letter N, not the word and. Once again, that's once and again, a consignment and resale shop located in Fairbury and Pontiac, Illinois. So it's a very hard area to, to live in, and it's full of lots of things that make it tough, even though there wouldn't be in combat. Anyone who's been there knows about wait-a-minute branches, we call them. There's... They're a, we call it wait a minute because they got little like fish hooks on them and that if you catch yourself on them, the only way to, to do it is to stop, back up, pull it backwards out of you and then go on. Hmm. Um, and that's just a natural, it's not like a trap laid no, by the end. It's just, just a natural branch. vegetation. Oh, wow. Yeah, bushes. Everything's working against you. <laughs> and there's leeches, there's, you know... Um, it wasn't uncommon to wake up with 25 or 30 leeches on you. Oh, my gosh. But they weren't the huge leech. The mountain leeches are more like inchworms, and they uh -huh. get on you. And, you know, sometimes you'd be sitting there at night, and I remember one time one was stuck up here, and I could see him going <laughs> in front of my eyes. <laughs> well... So what was your introduction then to, to Vietnam? Not, not necessarily battle, but where do you go first? So I assume you had to yeah. do some basic training in the first, United States. We did AIT at Fort Lewis, Washington in the middle of winter. What's AIT? Sorry. Advanced Infantry Training. Okay. And that training was not the best. You know, we're in the middle of winter and we're going to 100 degree weather. Oh my gosh. Um, but that's where I took my AIT. Now, some went to Fort Polk, Louisiana, which was much closer to the Vietnam environment. Then they had a in-country training for about 10 days. And basically, they tried to orientate you to what was going on, give uh. you a chance to get used to the weather, because it was 
we went from middle of winter to 100 degree weather mm-hmm. and then from there they flew us to up to camp evans where i went then from there they pretty much gave you a rucksack and off to the jungle you went and that's when things got real yeah well it sounds like it kind of things happened quickly you're just in the united states all of a sudden you're over in vietnam you acclimate for a very short period of time and then you're on your way like you said right. you got a rucksack and off to the jungle you go it, did it feel like it was happening very fast it was kind of a blur <laughs> I bet. because it did happen fast. And when you got there, unlike units that went there first, where they were all transferred in as a unit, we were basically reinforcements at that point in the war. Oh. So we went in not knowing any of the other guys in the company. You know, they plop you down in the jungle off a helicopter and the captain says you're in this platoon platoon sergeant comes and gets you and puts you says follow the guy in front of you and you single file go through the jungle looking for the enemy all right so right now we can probably transition into your actual experience in the thick of things in in vietnam first of all is terry still with you at this point no terry has gone to the Americal Division at that point in time, and I was in the 101st. Basically, the f- first combat I was in was near a fire base, Vagel. The company was assigned for f- three or four days to be the um, set up a perimeter around the fire base, and then we would guard the fire base. Then during the day, they sent us out, our platoon out on a mission uh, really it was pretty much just our squad went out on a patrol and we ran into we didn't know it at the time but we ran into a battalion of north vietnamese about 200 and there was 11 of us so we didn't do real well in that engagement uh, we lost uh, two killed and about seven or eight wounded well Seven. Hold up, that sounds that's insane. So yeah. you guys, what were you doing again? I'm I'm sorry. You, you well, we were you're... on a patrol. Generally, when you go to a fire base, you would go out on patrol during the day to, to scout for the enemy. Okay. And what that does is it keeps the enemy from getting too close to the fire base. Yeah. Because if they get close, then they'll attack at night. Mm-hmm. So the job of the patrols is to see if they're there and to try to keep them away. Before we even talk about running into those 200 North Vietnamese, what was the experience like walking through the jungle? Was it was it anxiety provoking? Because you don't know what's around the corner. There's a billion places to hide. If I understand correctly, there were some unique traps set by the North Vietnamese in this war. Was yeah. it, what do you remember feeling when you were walking through? It depended on the position you were in in the in the company because every day that you moved out you'd have a point man and a slack man and this those two are actually leading the column through the jungle and those two people are most susceptible to being shot uh, so if you got selected to be the point man for the day then you're 
that's a pretty nerve-wracking experience. Oh, I couldn't even imagine. Uh, if you're further back in the column, it's more of a, I don't know, just drudgery. You're climbing up and down the hills in 100-degree weather. Your rucksack weighs maybe 100 pounds. Mm -hmm. So you're carrying a lot of weight climbing up and down hills all day long. Oh, no. Me and yeah. so me and actually your grandson, Kyle, and, yeah. uh, and some of our friends went hiking. We had 60-pound bags. We hiked. It wasn't 100 degrees. It was probably like a beautiful 60 degrees. There's some yeah. gentle hills. And we hiked probably, well, we hiked a good few miles, probably like 10 miles in a day. And it was exhausting. I couldn't imagine doing that yeah. in 100-degree weather for a longer period of time. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I couldn't even imagine that. Yeah. It had to be terrible. We did have some people that we had to take out, uh, send a medevac in for, for heat stroke, mm -hmm. exa heat exhaustion, um, because that can be, you know, hard on you hiking in that kind of weather with mm -hmm. that kind of weight on your back. But I think that's part of the reason they choose young people. <laughs> so I want to talk about that specific patrol that you were yeah. speaking of. It was you and about 10, 12 guys, you said? It started out that way. Mm -hmm. And then after we made contact and we had uh, one person killed, I was probably five or six back from the, from the uh, person who was killed. And... It was just small arms fire. So you were just walking through the jungle and yeah. all of a sudden, are they all together? Is there just a big old group of people that you guys see? No, no, we didn't really, couldn't even see them. The, the jungle was so thick. Yeah. We could hear the firing. Then we pulled back a little ways. Then we tried feeling them again. Cause we didn't, at that point in time, we didn't realize what we ran into. Uh, we thought we just ran into a few people. We moved forward and... The guy next to me got shot, and I helped him. Then I was getting him back up to the thing, and some recon platoon came in to help us because they were nearby. Um, and that was maybe 20 more people for us. And then uh, we made contact again, and I went and helped another guy that had been injured, get back up to the medevac. So then we set up a perimeter that night, and then the next day, Delta Company came to help us, and they ran into the same uh, problem. So then we ended up going back, and we had lost two guys out in the field. Uh, so then on the day after Easter, we or it may have even been Easter morning, I can't remember now, but we went back out to retrieve their bodies. Thought we were going to run into stuff, but the North Vietnamese had left the area. It's, you're, you're kind of talking about this almost nonchalantly, but it's like crazy to me. So the yeah. guy who was right next to you yeah. got, got shot, and did, did yeah. he die instantly? No, he didn't die. That one, uh, Elsie was his name. And he lives in Louisiana. I did talk to him a, about a year ago. Um, Maybe he'll see this video. <laughs> <laughs> I ought to send it to him. Yeah. Uh, but he got shot in the chest. 
but because of the trajectory, the bullets went in, but they went up because we were we were going downhill, mm-hmm. and he so he was fortunate. What's going through your head when he gets hit? We are brought to you by Forest Edge Tree Service. If you have trees or tree stumps on your property that you want gone, go nowhere else but Livingston County's premier tree service provider, Forest Edge Tree Service. This winter has been tough on all of our trees, and it's definitely caused tons of lasting damage. All it takes now is a little strong wind to lead to downed trees, limbs, and power lines, potentially resulting in massive damage to your homes, cars, and properties. Face it, your yard is no place for looming dead or damaged trees. It's just a matter of time before one comes down, and whether by your choice or not. This is precisely why you need to be a responsible adult and hire the services of Forest Edge Tree Service. Simply give Joe Rudin a call or text at 815-615-3037 to get a free quote today and prevent the property damage, financial distress, and all the other bad stuff that comes with unplanned down trees. Take care of the problem before it's a problem. Forest Edge Tree Service is staffed with trained professionals who use cutting-edge equipment to get the job done right every time. But if somehow, by some one-in-a-million chance, something went wrong, they are fully insured, so hiring their services is truly risk-free. These experienced pros take pride in their attention to detail, in their cleanup, and in their relationships with customers, which is why they are Livingston County's premier tree service provider. Keep your family, pets, vehicles, and neighbors safe and save yourself a world of headaches when you call or text Forest Edge Tree Service at 815-615-3037 to get those dangerous, looming, dead, troublesome accidents waiting to happen off of your property. That's Forest Edge Tree Service. Call or text them at 815-615-3037. What's going through your head when he gets hit? And then how quickly do you decide, hey, I'm going to help this guy up? Well, I was instantly helping him. And I remember talking to him. And I remember him saying, am I hit bad? And I remember looking at the blood spots on his chest. And I, um, I just said, you're going to make it. You'll be okay. Were you not so sure, though, when you said it? Oh, yeah, I, I didn't think he was going to make it at the time because I never thought about the trajectory until day two later as to what really had happened because it had happened so fast. But, yeah, it was kind of a tough time that day for our company or our platoon. And then but, did you go back in that same um, in that same fight? Did you go back for someone else? Yeah. And yeah. you helped them successfully yeah. as well? One was successful. One that we went back and got, uh, Sergeant Jenkins from the recon platoon, didn't make it. Uh, he was hit too bad. What do you remember feeling at that time? Were you just kind of going numb and you're like, all right, just were you just doing your job at that point? Or do you remember thinking, this is crazy. What am I doing? I'm 19 years old. Why am I in this jungle? Why am I carrying my comrade? I think I was pretty much numb at that point. Yeah. Because um, it, it happens very quick. And combat is something where you react 
and then you think about it later. That's exactly what David Sober says. You react and then you think later. And yeah. sometimes the thinking later is not pretty. Like yeah. sometimes that's when it gets yeah. tough. Yeah. And you said later that evening, you, you did you say you set up camp there? Right. And then you we, slept there? Yeah. At, nearly at the spot that you got where you ran into yes. the North Vietnamese? Yeah. How'd you fall asleep? Um, I'm not sure we really slept a lot that night. <laughs> I bet. Because there weren't a lot of us. Uh, there was maybe only about 15 or 20 of us mm-hmm. at that point in time. But I think the North Vietnamese were starting to prepare to move out because of our superiority of the Air Force. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's the Cobra gunships or the jets, uh, we had an advantage in terms of the amount of firepower we could bring. Right, right. And it seems like in the Vietnam War, so one, the North Vietnamese, they knew the land. They were pretty good at getting entrenched, and they would even have underground tunnels. Um, they, they knew the land very well. But, yeah, like you said, the, the Air Force and the air attacks from the United States could still wipe them out for the most part. But then it was dangerous because... You know, within that jungle, the United States could be intermingled in there. And from what I understand, some of those airstrikes from the U.S. would hit some of our own guys a lot of the time. Yeah, that happened sometimes where friendly fire would. Yeah. Because of, they would bring the airstrikes in so close. Now, mm-hmm. it didn't happen at that engagement. But that did happen on Hamburger Hill. Okay, that's exactly what I would like to talk about next and i just want to preface by saying in my research on all of the war history websites that i looked at when i'm looking at the most major battles of the vietnam war hamburger hill is always in the top five or even the top three it's a big important battle in vietnam it got a lot of press they even made a movie about it and you were there this was a gruesome 10-day battle, and you were there, and you were in the thick of things. I knew it was bad because one of our Kit Carson scouts, which is a North Vietnamese defector. Defector? What's that mean? Someone that kind of switched sides? Yeah, he switched sides. Very interesting. I didn't know those were a thing. Yeah, and we called them Kit Carson scouts. But when he found out we were going to the valley, he uh, got caught bringing a rucksack full of marijuana back into the base camp Mm -hmm. and they asked him why he did it and he said because he didn't want to go to the valley (laughs) he said there was too many well they call it he said buku nva and he said he'd rather go to jail (laughs) than go back in there by buku uh, Buku, nva buku is lots of oh i see it's just a vietnamese language for large number <laughs> okay he said there's there's a lot of people there i re- yeah. I would rather go to jail yeah because it's the odds weren't in your favor were they no. and he's the one that uh he was the one that got killed first at vagel hmm. so he ended up getting killed we're talking about hamburger hill here major battle of the vietnam war did you get dropped off in the middle of this? What were you doing? What was your role in all this? And when did you arrive at Hamburger Hill? Because it started, the battle started on May 10th, and it yeah. ended on May 21st or 20th, 
I'm thinking we got there around the 11th. Okay. But I can't remember exactly. Um, because the 3rd of 187th was in contact. And then we went to reinforce them. Um, basically, they picked us up by a helicopter, dropped us off. And then we, it took us a full day to get through the jungle to get to where we were at that ridge line. Okay. And as soon as we broke on top of the ridge line, we made contact. Um, but that, then it became a slog to try to move out. What, what do you mean by that? What's that mean? It was just tough. You know, people getting shot and, you know, taking casualties and stuff. What was your introduction like to that battle? How did things start off? And Well, the ridge line that we got on top was maybe 40 or 50 feet wide. And there was a path, a trail that ran right up to Hamburger Hill. And um, there was quite a bit of communication cables on it wiring in the trees mm -hmm. that ran from Hamburger Hill down into Laos so they could communicate. Mm. Um, really quick, why did they call it Hamburger Hill? You know, that's something I I don't know because we never called it that during the battle. We weren't thinking about that. Um, somebody put up a sign after the battle was over that said Hamburger Hill. So one of the guys come up with that idea. I have no idea. I don't think it was one of our guys. I think it was one of the guys from the third of the one eighty seventh. So I saw a little documentary on it, and someone said that it was called Hamburger Hill because one, the grinding nature of the battle itself, but also mostly because the intense machine gun fire would do to people what a meat grinder would do to, to meat. Well, that's true. Um, when I've got pictures at home of the top of the hill, that it just, all that triple canopy jungle is just turned into just chunks of wood. I mean, just chewed up. Mm -hmm. uh, the amount of ordnance that was fired at that hill was unbelievable. I want to ask, and this might be tough for you to answer. Yeah. What was the actual firefight like? Because um, you were there for presumably at least nine days. You know, because it was like I said, it was a gruesome battle, and this yeah. was a rare moment in Vietnam where the North Vietnamese were—they had the advantage, and they were fighting pretty hard, from what I know. We are brought to you by Connections of Fairview Haven. You can probably think of someone right now who could use a little assistance in their daily lives at home. Whether that be because of their age, mobility issues, their weight, or maybe they think that going out during these times is a little too risky for them. They may need assistance with bathing, taking their medication, running errands, getting groceries, or who knows what else. This is where my friends at Connections of Fairview Haven come in. Connections of Fairview Haven is a licensed home service agency that provides tons of different non-medical services for you or your loved one in the comfort, privacy, and safety of your own home. They will literally come to your place of residence and help with almost any of the services that you need. Their staff offers 
high quality, loving, personal care to all of God's children whom they have the privilege of assisting. They've even partnered with local businesses to provide services that their own employees aren't specialized in. Services like lawn care, home repairs, and therapy. Connections of Fairview Haven takes all of the worry out of daily living and empowers you to continue to live an abundant life your way. This program is servicing Livingston County, Iroquois County, Ford County, and McLean County, and they can start working with you or someone you love right now with as little as one phone call to Arla Wheeler at 815-692-6703. You can read more about Connections of Fairview Haven on their website, fairviewhaven.org. Connections of Fairview Haven. They're putting the gold back into the golden years. They had the advantage, and they were fighting pretty hard from what I know. We had a lot of guys wounded and injured and killed. Um, I got medevaced off on the 18th, and the battle lasted to the 21st. Uh, I had been wounded, um, and I still to this day don't know if it was from friendly fire or if it was a hand grenade from a North Vietnamese. Um, but one of our guys had been hit with, we think it was a 175 that, uh, went long or short and hit our company rather than the enemy. And he got pretty badly hurt. And about the same time I got hit in the back of one of the leg, one of my legs, with a piece of shrapnel, mm. but it wasn't real bad, so they didn't medevac me out immediately. But a day later, um, the field first sergeant sent me in because he thought they were going to have to uh, run off the hill or the ridge line uh, because they were down to from 120 to 22 people. So 120 people went onto the hill? 126, I think there was, of our company. And the vast majority, vast majority of them didn't make it? Most of them made it. They just were wounded. Oh, so I see. Was there ever a point in this battle that you thought this might be the end for you? Oh, <laughs> really? Yeah, lots of times. Uh, you couldn't hardly not think that with everybody getting wounded and killed. Could you tell me about maybe one of your close calls? It was almost a daily occurrence when you moved out. Every day was people getting wounded and hurt. Uh, so it was an everyday occurrence because we couldn't really see the enemy that well because of the jungle. And I mean, I can tell you a funny story on that. Sure. <laughs> uh, me and Cardenas, this friend of mine, we got picked for listening post one night, and which listening LP is, if you're set up here, the LPs go out on the front and the back of the column on the ridge line. They go out about 10 yards in front of the, everybody else, and then you sit there all night long, and you're basically the... Uh, guinea pigs or the or the warnings yeah trip flare uh -huh. for the rest of the company so if you get injured or shot at then they all know what's going on 
before they've gotten hit. We got out there and we were sitting there setting up and trying to hide. And he was going to pull guard first and he was looking around. He couldn't find his gun. And he had left it back inside the perimeter of the company. And by now it's dark. You can't go back. Uh And you can't. And he wanted to borrow mine. And I said, I'm not giving you my gun. (laughs) So that was kind of funny. Why couldn't he go back? Well, because you make too much noise in the dark. Oh, so you guys had to stay really quiet. Yeah. So there was probably like no moments of relaxation here. Like your guard was probably always up. Yeah. I mean, there, there were funny things that happened over there. I mean, times when things were kind of funny, but mm-hmm. uh, sometimes you get laughed at them because what else are you going to do? Right. Was there a time in that war that was especially difficult, like for you to not forget about, but to deal with even when you came home? Like what was the most emotionally taxing part of, of your stay in Vietnam, if you don't mind me asking? I think it was, you know, obviously losing friends, you know. We had 44 people in my company that were killed over there out of, well, because of the way they rotated people in and out, there was probably 200 people altogether. Hmm. But that's still a fairly high percentage that just didn't make it. And that's probably the toughest thing. One of the sergeants, when I got there, He made the comment that I don't like to make friends with people because I don't want to have to put my friends in a body bag. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that is probably one of the tougher things. Mm -hmm. How were you? Was it scary thinking about the, the fact that you might die? Were you scared of death or did you eventually just come to terms with it? Like, hey, this might happen and it is what it is. I don't think you ever really come to terms with that in thinking about it's going to happen to you. We are brought to you by the Coffee Steamer. The Coffee Steamer is Livingston County's premier coffee joint. Their trailer in Fairbury boasts delicious and decadent coffee drinks, teas, and smoothies, while their full-service cafe in Forest has all that, plus tons of incredible baked goods, sandwiches, and salads. Life is too short to drink bad coffee, so head on over to the Coffee Steamer and start your mornings off right. That's the Coffee Steamer in Fairbury and Forest, Illinois. I don't think you ever really come to terms with that in thinking about it's going to happen to you. Um, it certainly is a possibility that everybody knew that it could happen, but I don't think people really ever accept the fact that it might be them. Mm-hmm. You know, even on Hamburger Hill or 996 or those other low situations we were in because uh, I was in a helicopter crash too but even in going down in the helicopter I didn't think I was going to die how'd that pan out well <laughs> helicopter crash fortunately we the luck was it just seemed like I was always somewhat lucky over there uh, or I shouldn't say somewhat I was definitely lucky uh, the helicopter started to go down, and we were 
the pilot was able to get over the valley floor rather than landing in the trees. And the valley floor just had elephant grass. Oh, wow. So we were able to, he was able to do that auto gyration where they, they somehow pitch the helicopter blades and it slows you down enough that you don't uh, completely crash. Mm-hmm. You come down pretty fast and pretty hard, but... What were you um, thinking during that moment? You still didn't think you were going to... That this could be the it end? It happens so quick. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're up a thousand feet in the air and then all of a sudden you're on the ground. And I just remember the... <laughs> That it's, I knew something was wrong because the, the helicopter started vibrating real bad. Uh-huh. And then it, it just came down really fast. Man. And we jumped off and put up a perimeter. And fortunately, we didn't land in the midst of a bunch of North Vietnamese. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. What did you think of the North Vietnamese? When you were in, when you were in the thick of things, what were your thoughts about what, how they were as people? Did you think of them as savages or, or what? No, I had a lot of respect for the North Vietnamese soldier. Really? Uh, they were very tough soldiers. Very dedicated, very... I mean, they were in it to the end. When they got sent south from North Vietnam, they knew they either had to win the war or not come home. I had a lot of respect for him because living in the jungle, we would go out on patrol for 50 days at a time, sleeping in the jungle, laying, you know, basically down on the ground and living like that. And you can't hardly not have respect for an adversary that... uh, is doing that not just for 50 days at a time, but he's doing it for years, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, they're very tough people, the Vietnamese. I saw the fight between North Vietnam and South Vietnam. One of the biggest problems was the North Vietnamese were primarily Buddhist and the South Vietnamese were primarily Catholic. The South Vietnamese? Yes. Were they really? Yeah. And That's I, I had no idea about either of those things. Buddhist, that almost doesn't make sense. Yeah. Like that's isn't that a peace, no violence type of religion? That's what I had heard too. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I've had some friends that were Vietnamese that came over on the boat people out of mm-hmm. Vietnam when it fell in '75, uh, and they said that one of them in particular said that two of her family members were Catholic priests and they were executed by the North Vietnamese. Holy smokes. Uh, The North Vietnamese were very brutal to the South Vietnamese. Uh, And I felt very sorry for for the Vietnamese people after we left and abandoned them because we kind of got them into it and then we pulled the rug out from under them. When you went in, what were your thoughts on the U.S.'s involvement in this foreign conflict? It technically wasn't a war because there was no declaration of war signed or anything. It right. was more of a, a conflict. Right. I thought the, the South Vietnamese deserved a chance to build their country. 
but they didn't seem to have the tenacity that the North Vietnamese had. The North Vietnamese, and it wasn't entirely because they believed in their cause, but because the North Vietnamese were willing to, I don't know if I want to say they were brutal in there, but for instance, one of the guys, I didn't see this because I was medevaced on the 18th, but one of the guys manning the North Vietnamese machine guns on top of Hamburger Hill, they had him chained oh my. to the, so he couldn't run. You know, and they were just willing to go that extra step. Yeah, and you can you can look at that in in multiple different ways. You could say yeah. like these people will stop at nothing to achieve their goal, and you might be like, "Wow, that's incredible." At the same time, it's like, where is the respect for the dignity of life to chain a guy to a, a machine gun? It's like, yeah, that you're just looking at human beings as as pawns to get. To the goal at that point. And there were a lot of cases, supposedly, of U.S. troops doing things they shouldn't have to the Vietnamese. But there were probably three times as many cases where the North Vietnamese did something horrible to the South Vietnamese. Mm -hmm. Especially if they thought they were sympathizers with the U.S. Mm -hmm. You know, they... They were fairly brutal to the South Vietnamese. And what did they say that they would do? You know, the North. They just line people up and execute them. Oh, okay. You know, uh, there's actually images of that on Google. I was looking up some of them. I'm like, man, this must have happened an awful lot if there's this many pictures. Yeah, because there weren't that many photographers. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean that, and then the Vietnamese, the South Vietnamese. They're just a super nice people. Uh, so I really like the South Vietnamese. I The kids are just phenomenal. They're always smiling. And you think of the, the poverty and the war going on and everything else, and they're all smiling and yeah. laughing. And So I don't know. It was just kind of a... Where am I at? It's almost mm-hmm. surreal. Yeah. I feel like happiness is all about perspective anyways. Yeah. You know, you can be living in poverty as long as, you know, if you're surrounded by family and you and you're playing with other kids and things, that's yeah. really all that yeah. that matters as long as your basic needs are met, you're fed and stuff. Yeah. We are brought to you by Fairberry Furniture. Fairberry Furniture is the area's favorite furniture store. Their selection is huge, their staff is helpful and friendly, and they have all of your favorite brands of mattresses, tables, chairs, recliners, couches, and basically all furniture items. So make your home comfy, stylish, and delightful when you shop at Fairberry's own Fairberry Furniture. Definitely perspective has a lot to do with it, but it just seems like the Vietnamese people are very tough inner strength people willing to die for their cause and willing to accept hardship i mean they it's it's amazing how much hardship they have in that country versus for instance the people in the united states mm-hmm. we're pretty spoiled no doubt about it i mean yeah. 
Do you, what do you think? Do you think this is the greatest country on earth? There are things about this country that I think are, are really great. I think we have forgot how hard our ancestors had it in, you know, jumping on a wagon train and going across or getting on a ship and coming across the ocean without, you know, any guarantee the ship's going to make it to the other side. Um, we forgot what real struggle is all about. Yeah. And maybe the last generation is not my generation, but our parents' generation during World War II and the Depression in the 1930s. Mm-hmm. I think those people really understood how things can go out of hand and the struggle. Mm-hmm. So... Hamburger Hill, just to kind of wrap that up, 10-day battle, um, technically speaking, the United States had its, took control of that hill by May 21st. You were gone by May 18th. And what makes that story so odd and really definitely gave the Vietnam War a bad rap back in the United States is after we took control, just a few days later, we abandoned the hill, and the North Vietnamese took it right back over. Do you remember yeah. when that happened, and, and what were your thoughts when that happened, when you received word that, hey, I was just fighting on this hill to get control over it, and we got it, and then we just abandoned it? The cosmetics of it, the way it looks, doesn't make a lot of sense to people back here. Given the terrain over there, um, unless you're willing to take the ground and hold it, which we didn't really have enough troops to do, from a strategic military sense, it probably made sense to leave it because it was no different than the hill right next to it or the hill a mile away. They're all just hills in a huge area and we didn't have enough troops. But I agree that the way it looked to the American people was not real good. Mm-hmm. This is such an interesting time in American history as well because this was getting into the very early 70s. This was 1969, kind of the height of the anti-war movement. And Hamburger Hill was kind of leading towards the climax of that movement because yeah. we, they people back home thought that we were being irresponsible and rash and just making decisions too quickly and sacrificing too many lives. Um, so, I mean, and, and President Nixon was ridiculed heavily. Yeah. Having said what I did about us abandoning it, I'm not sure I agreed with the tactic of just keep sending us up the hill. Right, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm not sure it wouldn't have made more sense to just back off set up a blocking around it and just call in all the artillery and air airstrikes mm-hmm. probably would have been a better course of action. So they were sending you up, you were meeting some heavy resistance, heavy gunfire, yeah. serious resistance. And then you'd probably go back and then they'd say, all right, we're going back up again. Yeah. The next morning you get up and move out, try to get up the hill again. And maybe lose a few more people and then do yeah. it again the next day. 
Yeah. What was that like for you? Were you were you mad? Were people like, "What are we doing?" Yeah, at the time, I don't remember exactly what I was thinking, but I think it was more about, "Oh no, we got to do this again. <laughs> we got to do it again." And what's the point? Yeah. And are we are we going to get to the top or what what is the goal? I mean, what it was kind of what was kind of a feeling of futility. It's pretty hard to have a sense of victory when you've taken so many casualties. Yeah. I mean, it's a fairly you know, when you look on on TV or or in the newspaper, that's just statistics and yeah you had a victory but Mm -hmm. when it's your friends paid for that victory Mm -hmm. it's pretty hard to consider it a victory when it's that many people are hurt right so i assume do you go home pretty soon after the battle of hamburger hill then no that was actually in may then we had 996 where gordy roberts got the congressional medal of honor in that battle and that one i felt was more of a victory because we did suffer a few guys were killed and some wounded but in general we went in there to save this other company and that and we and we did save their save them so i felt like that was more of a victory Uh, and then we had the sapper attack in August, where we were hit on a firebase purchase garden in the valley, and that was more of a victory. Mm-hmm. We did have some people wounded and killed, but um, it was more of a victory. Mm-hmm. We were defending where we were at the, and not attacking, and we didn't take near the number of casualties. I'm very curious to ask this then. You eventually would return home before the Vietnam War was officially over, and there was still a big anti-war movement in the society here in the United States. What was your homecoming like? Were you met with open arms or... I don't really remember being met with open arms except by my family and the the people in Fairbury were not that way uh, during the war, at least as I recall. but when I went back to ISU, there was a lot of antagonism by some of the college professors and some of the students against the war. And they were less than friendly towards anyone who had been in the war. They were less than friendly? Yeah. <laughs> so did you ever did you ever meet, like, like, did anyone ever say some words to you that weren't exactly nice? Yeah, but not, not to the extent that I've read about some people's experiences. Right. Like you never got spat on or anything? No. I, I remember some people making negative comments about the war to me and about me being in the war. How did you react, though? Because me right now, I hear that. I'm like, you lost, you lost friends and you fought for you know fellow yeah. Americans to save them. And you lost your friends. You risked your life big time. Only to come back and have people just 
kind of protest the war to your face and protest what you did? I was very, I don't know, I felt a lot of hostility towards some of the people, especially the ones um, that were saying we were committing war crimes and things like that because I personally didn't see any of that. But then I'll have to say I didn't work around the villages either. Mm -hmm. So we didn't have an opportunity or uh, we weren't placed in a position where that was even going to happen. And it was crazy because this was a time that the media was big time on the rise. And so images of the war, brutal images, were put in you know, Time magazine, Life magazine, on yeah. the news every night. So yeah. Yeah, they, they really had, I mean, the media totally dictated what their thoughts on the war were at the time. And right. bad news sells, so they they would only air, you know, the, the harsh realities of war only. And yeah, it, it, it looked really bad. It, I'll have to agree that if you put pictures of some of the things that I saw in the magazines, yeah, some of that was not right. Mm -hmm. um, but... I think those were the exceptions, not the rule of what really happened mm -hmm. over there. And, and what were your thoughts then on the United States more or less pulling out of that war? Because I, eventually the North Vietnamese would overtake South Vietnam yeah. and communism would be the, the law of the land there. Yeah. I wasn't as concerned about South Vietnam or becoming communist because of the economic condition of the South Vietnamese and North Vietnamese. Mm. Uh, it was primarily a third world country, and I don't mean that negative towards the people, but just in terms of its impact on the U.S. would not be that great. Uh, at that point in time, mm -hmm. um, there was a theory of the domino theory that the, all of Southeast Asia exactly, was going right. to fall. And that turned out to not be true. Uh, but I was very upset because I knew what the North Vietnamese would do to the South Vietnamese that had been our friends, the ones that had either been in the South Vietnamese Army or had, like, the interpreter that we had mm -hmm. or um, those Catholic priests I mentioned that were killed. Um, the North Vietnamese were very brutal for several years, and that forced a lot of the Vietnamese people into that, those boat people that came out of, they would just get on a boat and sail off into the China Sea and hope somebody picked them up wow. that was friendly. So I was really upset about that. So the South Vietnamese people, once the United States pulled out, and it's like, all right, did, did you basically say, sorry guys, we're out of here though? That's the way I saw it. Um, it didn't happen that way while I was there because we still had, in 69, we still had a pretty good-sized presence mm -hmm. militarily. It wasn't until probably 72 or 73 that it was becoming pretty evident that we were pulling out and that the politicians did not have the stomach for continued support. Mm -hmm. And I was somewhat upset in 75 when it finally fell, that we didn't do anything to even help 
I think we sent a few helicopters in to rescue some people off rooftops, but mm-hmm. oh my gosh! By and large, we didn't do anything to help those people. And you said you spoke to some of those those boat people, as they yeah, were called. Yeah, it's one of the things with Facebook. I friended a person in South Vietnam and uh, talked to him just through Facebook, uh, and they said it was very bad after the North Vietnamese took over for the South Vietnamese people, primarily for people of the Catholic faith and those who had been... Now, because there's still some, even though it was... That that was a difference I saw between the Buddhists and the, and the Catholics. There were still Buddhists in South Vietnam besides the Catholics, but mm-hmm. uh, there was a lot of churches, wow. Catholic churches in South Vietnam because of the French. Mm. Man, I can't believe I didn't know that part of this war. I'm a, de- I'm a <laughs> devout Catholic and I had no idea. Yeah. So, well, yeah. Jerry, we're about to wrap this whole thing up. Oh, okay. um, I, I normally wouldn't ask this kind of question, yeah. but in your case, I will, because I'm, I'm very curious. Other people that I've talked to and other people in general that have served time on the front lines in the Vietnam War come away with some serious scars, be it physically, but I mean more so um, mentally. You seem, in from other people's opinions, you seem to have handled those scars, those mental scars, relatively well. And you, I mean, you have a calm demeanor, you're a kind person, and you're recalling these events without any real, you know, it doesn't seem like it's rattling you that much. How do you do that? And, and to what do you credit your ability to do that, to have that control and to not be totally broken by the whole event? I think I keep internalize a lot of feelings that I have because I don't let people know how I'm feeling inside. Uh, hmm. And I must be good at it because I have had a lot of people tell me that same thing. You know, some of the guys in my unit, we get together every year for reunion. And uh, one of the guys said he he liked being in battle with me because I was always so calm. And I always thought I was a nervous wreck. (laughs) Hmm. Uh, And I don't know if it's just part of my nature, but uh, I've had people make that comment before to me. And I don't really have an explanation because I don't see myself as being totally calm about the whole situation. I just express it calmly. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. You know. So there's maybe a lot going on under the surface when you're telling these events and stuff? Yeah, because I get emotional about it. At our reunions, we have a missing man table and we light a candle for every guy that was killed and... um, it's a very emotional time. And I got, when I went back to Vietnam, I got very choked up several times. Mm-hmm. One of the guys that we went with, he had laid out GPS coordinates for every battle we were in. Yeah. And then we tried to get as near to that site as we could. And some of the Gold Star families gave us mementos to take back. And bury at the spot where their son or brother or whatever was killed at. And then we had a service like at each of the spots and it was pretty emotional. 
one of the families gave us some apple seeds because their brother was killed over there, uh, liked apples, and so we planted apples, apple seeds in a farmer let us plant them in his garden. Says, I hope his family goes there one day and sees the apple tree. That would would be nice if the you know if the Vietnamese guy would post something someday. Yeah. <laughs> but it's not likely. Right. Uh, once you get away from the cities, Vietnam is still a very poor country. Mm-hmm. Dirt floors and uh, they've made a lot of progress since I was there in '69, but. Uh, it's still very poor compared to the U.S. You know, we we have so many luxuries compared to them. Yeah. And the people were, when I was back, the people were super friendly to us. I was worried that they would be really antagonistic towards us because of the Vietnam War. But all of the Vietnamese were, came up to us and friendly and, GI number one and the typical things that they would say back then, mm-hmm. but you got the feeling now that they really meant it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, wow. And it's almost like there's two countries in Vietnam. There's the country that's controlled by the government and there's the country that has gone capitalistic. And there's huge capitalistic base under the communist where everybody's got a mom and pop store and shop that yeah. they're selling stuff from and very interesting. Yeah, it's 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 a different country. And I hear you're over there right now they'll they kinda even recall the Vietnam War in a different way than Americans do. Definitely. I know on yeah, on <laughs> Hamburger Hill I think there's a monument that kind of says like the war it went a totally different way. Yeah. Like that the it was a North great Vietnamese victory. Yes, yeah. For the Vietnamese people. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And in a sense, I guess it was a great victory, but not in the sense of a, what you would think a military victory, but it was a political victory mm-hmm. because of what happened and what was used. The Hamburger Hill was used as a rallying guy, cry by the anti-war groups yes. in the United States mm-hmm. and the politicians. So it really turned the war, a lot of people against the war. So is it fair to say then that the war has probably left you with some emotional scars, even if we can't see them from the outside very easily? Are they there? Yeah, they're probably there, you know. I mean, there are times when I think about it. um, I've talked to some of my friends, and one of them said that the way I deal with it is by working a lot. Yeah, oh, I believe it. And if it. you work a lot, you don't think about it a lot because <laughs> uh-huh. you're busy working. Uh, so I'm a little bit wondering what retirement will bring. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever had to deal with it? Like, have you ever been on a beach or something like that and you're just alone with your thoughts? Have you ever had a moment where you you really feel the weight of those memories? Not to the extent that some of my friends have. I won't say that I don't think about it or that I don't worry about it or say, well, if I'd have done this different, maybe that person would have been alive because those kind of memories haunt you. Right. Did did you do enough? Did I, was I in the right position? Should I have done this differently? Uh, You begin to second guess yourself. Mm -hmm. And 
And that's the funny thing, not the funny thing, the reality of war is that each time you're in that position, you react quickly and then later on you think, well, maybe I should have done it a little bit different. Maybe I should have went over there instead of over here. If I'd have thrown a grenade right then, maybe they wouldn't have yeah. fired back. Um, you just have so many scenarios that run mm-hmm. through your head uh, that you can't really say for sure. Yeah. The whole experience, did it teach you something about life? Maybe that something good, something positive that you've taken away? Did it give you some perspective on life or anything like that? The one thing a lot of times I found myself thinking that, you know, when you have problems in business or whatever your problems are, you look at, I would look at it and I go, well, it could be worse. It could be back in Vietnam. (laughs) You know, so a lot of times I think it, it gave me a certain toughness in able to handle stress because I compare it to the stress over there and that's pretty minor. Yeah. Compared to that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It just doesn't get much worse, probably. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, Jerry Hoffman, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. I've really enjoyed this talk. It yeah. was great, very informative. So thank you for coming on. And on behalf of everyone watching this and everyone in general in the United States who enjoys its freedoms, thank you very much for your service. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Paul Garcia Show. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe on YouTube or like us on Facebook. If you would like to contribute to the production of this show financially, you can do so by becoming a patron on patreon.com forward slash Paul Garcia or by donating on Venmo to The Paul Garcia Show. Until next Sunday, I'm Paul Garcia. Thanks for listening to The Paul Garcia Show. God bless and have a great week.